Airlines Confidential with Ben Valdanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. Aerodata, the leading edge in flight performance data. Visit aerodata.co. Aerodata is a Garmin company. Sidley Austin, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies. Visit sidley.com aviation. And Seabury Securities, global reach, global scale. SeaburySecurities.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at AirlinesConfidential.com. Hello, I'm Ben Baldanza. Airlines Confidential is ready for boarding. All aviation fans should get in the priority lane and take their seats. And this is Chris Chimes. Thanks for joining us. Ben, as you know, I like to run an on-time operation, so let's get right to the news. And then our guest, Bob Ratner who's both a published novelist and a Delta Airlines pilot. Another wrinkle on the operational caps at London Heathrow and Amsterdam Schiphol airports. While these caps were put in place for the summer and are extended into the fall, more permanent caps are on the horizon for Schiphol to support their noise and emission reduction targets. Our friend Mike Boyd has issued commentary that says that with the cutbacks on regional and intra-Europe feed to and from these airports, they are basically being de-hubbed. The Dutch Minister for Infrastructure was quoted recently as saying that the capacity cap to be imposed next year, 2023, means that Schiphol will no longer be focused on luring passengers seeking the cheapest connecting flights between other cities without actually wanting to visit the Netherlands. So my question to you, what does this mean for alliances? They've been built on the basis of strong connectivity on, and network options on both sides of the Atlantic. Where does this position Schiphol, Heathrow, AABA, Delta KLM? It's a fascinating issue going on at Schiphol. And I'm wondering whether some of the statements being made are to remind people how dangerous some of these things are and what they could lose or whether people are saying that really is the future of this airport. Amsterdam has a terrific geographic position on the European continent, makes it a very natural hubbing location to serve passengers from further East Europe, as well as the U.S., into the Netherlands, into Asia, into Africa even, and the rest of Europe, Eastern Europe. So if Amsterdam is not going to be a hub, if Mike Boyd is right and says essentially it's being de-hubbed because the caps are going to eliminate feed from many close-in cities, that's probably good news for a Heathrow or a Frankfurt or a Charles de Gaulle or even an Istanbul, meaning another city or other hubs that also try to carry those, those same kinds of flows. But it doesn't mean good news for Amsterdam or the Netherlands as a city for their economy. 
Connecting traffic still drives volume at the airport, still drives employment at the airport, still drives um, a lot of just economic activity that's good. Yes, you'd rather carry local traffic. You'd rather have people come into your hub, stay for a while, then leave, not only be there for a connection. But if that's what Skipple is going to become, a local traffic base, then it is going to lose a lot of flights and many services that people in the Netherlands benefit from in terms of having nonstop service aren't going to be supported without all that connectivity. You know, Chris, when you and I were at U.S. Airways, we at one time had this big hub in Pittsburgh. And when we closed the hub in Pittsburgh, the city of Pittsburgh really felt that. They not only didn't have all the connecting operations there, but they lost nonstop service to dozens, if not a hundred cities, right? All kinds of things. And it took them many, many years to recover. And today, Pittsburgh is very different than it was as a hub. So Amsterdam, I think, would go into a long change period in terms of how it fits into the European aviation landscape. Well, that's exactly it. And they're looking at the airport in, in isolation versus recognizing what the value of Schiphol being a world-class hub and a major hub for global transportation has meant to the broader uh, Amsterdam region with regard to corporate activities, with regard to growth, with regard to econ economic opportunities. So, um, you know, there's lots of cities that would love to have that kind of economic engine in their midst, but they're making potentially a choice with regard to maybe we don't want that here uh, in the context of pollution, emissions, other kind of quality of life issues. But it's a fascinating debate. It could catch fire across Europe or it could backfire uh, miserably. But um, I think it's going to be one that's going to continue for a while as they try to figure out where to go with this. It'll be a great one to watch for sure. Well, Chris, here's one for you, and it's in my neighborhood of Northern Virginia. Seems like a group of residents who moved into a new retirement community on the flight path for Dulles Airport in 2020 and 2021 don't like the aircraft noise. Things were kind of quiet when they bought during the pandemic, but with air traffic coming back to pre-pandemic levels, well, they don't like it so much. What's your PR take on this issue and the way the Washington Post covered it? You know, I saw that Washington Post story. I got the app and I read it every day, even though it's been seven or eight years since I lived in Washington. But I was somewhat mystified why the Washington Post gave this neighborhood group even any oxygen on this. Um, you know, just because people complain doesn't mean it's worthy of news coverage. And, you know, if you looked at the discussion that followed, Dulles Airport's been there a lot longer than this neighborhood. I can't remember the name of the name of the complex it's for like it's geared towards kind of early retirees and retirees age 55 and over but clearly some developer got some cheap land in the flight path and built townhomes or a nice area that attracted these folks but to 
complain about the noise after and they're saying, well, you know, we don't expect the noise to go away. We just want them to fly higher. Or they, we want them to fly different routes. They bought in the airport flight path and they, I guess they should have known better. Um, and it's been a debate that's gone on uh, in and around airports for decades with regard to the airport was there first, neighborhoods develop, and then they complain about the noise. And, um, you know, I kind of joke, uh, we live in the flight path near Southwest's uh, love field operation here in Dallas. And technically, our neighborhood shouldn't hear aircraft noise. We do from time to time. I've joked a few times when we've been recording because I could hear, hear the plane coming overhead. But, you know, again, I knew that that airport was five miles up the road when I bought here. This house we live in was here before the airport, but still, I was well aware of the location of the airport. It just didn't get built without my knowledge. So I really had no sympathy for these folks, I'm sorry to say. And while it's certainly disruptive, they should take their complaints to the developer or somebody else. I agree with you on this, Chris. Clearly, if the airport had been built after the development, it's a different issue. And it makes me wonder whether that's another issue Mayor Stimson in Mobile is going to deal with when they change the volume of traffic from the Mobile airport to the in-city airport. They may see all the positives they're hoping for in terms of economy and not leaking traffic and such. But there's going to be people who live near that airport, which has been there a long time, but hasn't had the level of activity that Mayor Stimson wants to bring there. And I wonder if that's going to become an issue they're going to have to deal with too. Good point. Well, Seabury Securities is a Seabury Capital Group company, and it's the specialty finance and investment banking firm that boasts a 25-year track record of advising aviation clients around the world. Their award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge, as well as an unmatched depth of relationships with decision makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at SeaburySecurities.com. And this week's show is brought to you by Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in aircraft engines, helicopter engines, and auxiliary power units. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is the only geared propulsion system delivering industry-leading sustainability and dependable world-class operating costs. With up to 20% less fuel and CO2 emissions, the GTF engine has revolutionized commercial aviation and set the foundation for more sustainable aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. Ben, we've talked about this in the past, but what's your thought about the United Airlines announcement last week that they're taking out their checkbook and actually putting a $10 million deposit down for 100 units of Archer Aviation's eVTOL aircraft? It's one thing to say you want them. It's one thing to sign a letter of intent, but actually putting $10 million down is another thing. Now, that amount isn't going to kill United if, in fact, the EV tolls don't get delivered. It's a good thing for Archer. United obviously thinks that there's a role for this kind of Equipment, maybe in Los Angeles, San Francisco, Chicago, maybe Newark. To me, Chris, the EV tool world still has a lot 
unproven about it. The power to weight ratio still seems wrong to me. The fact that as the units fly, they don't get lighter weight because batteries don't get lighter weight as they lose charge, you know, compared to when you burn fuel, the plane is getting lighter and more efficient as it flies. And the airspace requirements that these are going to need are going to be very complicated issues for big cities that are already quite constrained. So United being a leader on this is probably a good thing. Archer Aviation gets some real money and can say we've got a real order. So that helps improve the probability they're actually going to deliver on the units. But I think there's still a lot to be proven about this type of service being well integrated and becoming an important issue versus a niche issue for U.S. aviation. Am I too uh, parochial on this, Chris? No. You know, I think there's lots of questions. Interestingly enough, I had a conversation with Kevin Cox this week. He's a former DFW executive and also uh, worked for several years at American Airlines in an executive role. And um, he's now working for the Spanish firm, I'm going to get this wrong, I think it's called Ferrovial, that one of their lines of business is developing the infrastructure for eVTOL aircraft. And um, he's going to be a guest on the show. We talked about him coming on uh, after Labor Day at some point. So you know, I think these are all the kinds of topics and conversation questions that we should be asking him. And... Um, Maybe he can make us smarter and get over your skepticism. But, you know, clearly there's more and more activity going on in this space. And um, we'll bring some more information to our listeners. Our weekly guest conversation is coming up, but not before a reminder that if you're in the air transport business, you need to know the name Aerodata. For three decades, Aerodata has helped airlines get more from their operations with its aircraft performance, weight and balance, and load planning tools and more. Visit aerodata.co to learn more and see how the Aerodata team can make a difference for your air carrier operations. This portion of Airlines Confidential is sponsored in part by Sidley Austin. From the ramp to the boardroom, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies transforming the skies. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential. We're very excited to have with us today Captain Bob Branter, who flies for Delta Airlines, and he's written a very exciting book called Sky Heist. Captain Bob, welcome to the show, and like all of our guests, tell us about your aviation background and what you do today. Well, thanks a lot, Ben and Chris, for having me on. I'm really excited to be here. As you said, my name is Bob Brantner, and I'm currently a commercial pilot and an author. I started very early in aviation. Aviation is in my blood as my mother was a stewardess back in the 1960s, and uh, she finished off her aviation career back in 2000 as a flight attendant for United Airlines. Had a great impact on my life. I started uh, flying airplanes, took my first flight lesson when I was in high school, and that led me to uh, attend college at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University in Prescott, Arizona. After I graduated from there, it was in 1991, a terrible time to be getting out and into the industry, but I was very fortunate. I was able to get a job flying airplanes in Alaska as a bush pilot up there. 
And I was uh, up in flying for uh, Mark Air for uh, four years until they went bankrupt in uh, late 95. And in 96, I got hired with TWA. I was with TWA for about four years. And in 2000, I left them to go to Delta Airlines. And I've been with them ever since. And today I'm flying as a captain in the A220 and a line check airman there as well. It is a, a great professional honor to be with that terrific company. And all the while, I've always spent my time on layovers or commuting or what have you, uh, just writing. And I've uh, penned a few uh, few manuscripts and I've started putting them out there. And I've been getting some uh, great reaction. And uh, as you said, Ben, you've read it. You said you enjoyed it and invited me on. So uh, it really is just a thrill to be here and talk about all of this. Well, Bob, you're book sky heist is the book that ben has read and enjoyed and contacted you about and it's based on a hijacking of a 1960s twa aircraft what made you choose that time frame for an airline drama well the uh the 1960s was the golden age of aviation and it's the age that my mother was in and i experienced that vicariously through here her there have been a, a number of movies about that era, and probably one of the most famous is Catch Me If You Can. And I frequently tell people it was the most depressing movie I ever saw because they actually used to treat airline pilots like that. So <laughs> they don't really do that anymore. But it really was just such an amazing age that took us to where we are right here. And then also as a writer, it was uh, also a, a great time to uh, put the book in because there are a lot of things that I was able to do with the story that quite frankly, you couldn't get away with today as far as security, the regulations. It, it gave me an opportunity to really revisit that golden age of aviation and set the story there. Well, it certainly makes sense when you read the book about, well, this wouldn't happen today, but it could have happened then. For airline geeks, your story really is hard to put down. You pepper in sort of airline ideas on almost every page. And that was what was, for me, particularly enjoyable about the book. Was your goal to write a story to appeal specifically to airline types, but also that a non-airline person could enjoy maybe not getting all the inside references? Whenever I set out to write a story, my number one intent is just to tell a good story, just to create a, a, something that will be engaging to anybody who picks it up. That said, it's always a lot of fun when I can educate somebody on that as well. The genesis of this story, the seed that started all of this, is I was always fascinated by D.B. Cooper. And since it is about a hijacking in the 1960s, frequently people will ask me if, uh, if it is a D.B. Cooper type story. And I usually deflect saying, well, that was in the 70s. This is in the 60s. But actually, that was the genesis. It's a hijacking of a 727. And the similarities pretty much end there, as Ben could tell you. But as opposed to the D.B. Cooper, the more I looked into the D.B. Cooper story and the idea of writing something along those lines, the more I realized I could do more if I used my imagination. So by setting the story in the 1960s, I was able to go to things that I've actually experienced. When I got hired with TWA, I was a flight engineer on a 727. So I could have it set on a 727 and I could also kind of focus on the flight engineer since I was a flight engineer. And I was able to take all of these elements of things that I have seen over the years and kind of craft them together into what hopefully is a really entertaining story. But I might fool you a little bit 
because when you're done, you've actually learned something about the age and the era that it's set in. Your book also has Alaska bush pilots as part of the plot line. Is there like some undercurrent there with the, with the fantasy of what you'd love to do if it paid better or where did that come into play? Well, I've always heard, write what you know. And when I started flying in Alaska, I was 23 years old, and that was really, really great. It is such an amazing place to, as a young pilot, there's just really very little oversight because you're out there on your own. The FAA isn't looking at you. You're not in a radar-controlled environment. And for me, as a writer, I was able to bring the best elements of that into the story and uh, and really make that a part of something that I could bring people into. And uh, the romance of flying in Alaska is probably greater than the reality of it, but it's also the thing that most people ask me about. I frequently will say when they ask me about flying in Alaska, I'll tell them, it's a great place to be from, but it's a really kind of a terrible place to be. <laughs> so frequently, it is just cold. It is challenging. And honestly, if you stay there too long, it will eventually get to you. I've, I've, uh, I've known a lot of people who are really great pilots who didn't make it out of there alive. When I tell people I flew in Alaska, I tell them it says two things about me as a pilot. I'm pretty good at what I do, but it's also, it tells you I'm pretty lucky also because it does come around to get to you uh, eventually. Well, we'll get back to the book in a minute, but since we have you here, we want to ask you some broader questions too. One of them is your employer. Delta is seen as a leader among the biggest airlines in the U.S. and is also thought of as one of the best managed of the big ones too. Is that view shared by the rank and file, and is that a source of pride for like the pilots at Delta? Without question, that view is shared by all of us, and it is a source of immense pride for me. Whenever I go about anything uh, and people ask me who I fly for, I, uh, it is a thrill for me to always tell them I fly for Delta. It's also a thrill for me when I hear them respond about how much they love Delta. I also listen to the podcast all the time, and you are frequently bringing up Delta as an example of the leader in the industry. And I really like to be a part of that. I, li I like the ability to play my role in what I believe is undoubtedly the best airline out there. It's a tremendous amount of pride for me. Really, it's the honor of my life that I do work for this airline. Well, the airline has you know, led the industry in the U.S. on so many different metrics, but it's hit a little bumpy spell these last few weeks with operations. Uh, have you had any unfortunate experiences uh, over the summer? It seems like... Um, Delta's had more than its share? I don't know if we've had more than our share. I, I think relatively speaking, things have gotten worse, but I think we're kind of, we, we fell back in line with what some of the other airlines have done. But I think if you look at the recent matrix, Delta also uh, was one of the first to correct the issues that we were having. And if you look over the 4th of July weekend, Delta is our performance, our on-time performance and our schedule completion performance has improved quite a bit. And um, I think we're leading the industry again over there. More Airlines Confidential in a moment. We're sponsored in part by Sidley Austin, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies 
transforming the skies. From the ramp to the boardroom, Sidley provides the broadest range of legal services to clients on the most critical issues facing our industry today. Sidley combines unmatched experience with top-tier capabilities across a vast global footprint. Visit sidley.com slash aviation for more information. Some projections say that the industry is going to need to hire 12,000 to 15,000 pilots over the next 12 months, but that only about 6,000 new pilots are coming into the system. That suggests that the pilot pipeline sort of isn't robust enough. What do you think the industry can do about that? You know, Ben, you're going to get me in big trouble with a question like that. I still have to work with these people and everybody who answers that question gets in trouble. <laughs> no, uh, seriously, I, uh, I don't think that there's any one silver bullet that's going to solve this problem. I think that the solution is out there, but it's not a solution. I think we're going to have to attack this from many different angles before we can find something. I think that probably the best way to find what this group of solutions would be to solve the problem would be bringing groups together, bringing A4A, ALPA, the FAA, bring these people together, form a commission, start looking at it. And I think that we could uh, we could come up with some really creative solutions that would start, uh, start finding uh, uh, an answer to this problem. You know, it might have something to do with the way we train people, maybe with the uh, 141 operations, as far as lowering that 1500 hour rule to something less. Maybe you're training pilots. You have a second class of pilots, like not quite Czech airmen, but captains that are more experienced who could fly with a pilot who say had 800 hours of time if they're flying with this pilot. These are challenges that, uh, that the airline will be very aware of. And it's something they won't want to spend the money on, but it also might be an answer that is worth the investment on it. I do believe there's an answer out there, but I think that it's going to uh, take a lot of people coming together to uh, figuring out what that answer is and also the will of the uh, airlines to implement that solution. Well, Bob, I'll say this since probably it's best if you don't. But I agree with you completely that it, there's no single silver bullet. And part of the answer is probably a change in compensation for pilots as well, meaning pilots should probably get paid more, especially earlier in their career, to encourage more pilots to join the profession or more people to become pilots. I absolutely agree with that. You know, I, I came in, like I said, in the uh, in the early 90s, I came into this this career. And if you remember back then, starting wages were as low as $14,000. And sometimes they even wanted a $10,000 training bond for you to get that. And I think it was that era that probably created a lot of the problems that we have right now. Now we're starting to see compensation coming back up. Unfortunately, there's a lag between the compensation and finding the pilots. I agree that paying the pilots more, especially on the low end, is certainly going to attract more people to the profession. The problem right now is it's still going to take a while before the people have enough time. You can only, there are only so many hours in a day, and it's going to take at least a couple of years if somebody decided even now to get involved before they're going to be even qualified 
to fly under a, a, a you know a regional carrier. You know, Bob, we get regular questions from listeners asking for our advice from pilots saying, you know, I fly for a regional airline. What should I do? Should I stick it out with these pay bonuses being implemented right now? Should I move to a, a ultra low cost carrier? Should I go to a mainline carrier? As you've been talking, you know, your career, you've made some tough decisions and some decisions have been made for you where you have had to move around and start at the bottom of a seniority list again uh, a couple times. What would your advice be to, let's say, a, a first officer at a regional airline right now? Well, as far as the questions of do you want to stick out this career, I would say absolutely. This is the greatest career bar none out there. I've been with uh, I've been with Delta for 22 years. I've been flying professionally for 30 years and I still get excited to come to work. I still I I can think of no other job out there where they give you a 64 million dollar toy to play with. It is just such a great profession and and it's very fulfilling too. When you look at people they're trying to get from point A to point B and we're getting them there safely. The fact that an airplane flies is still a miracle to me. With everything that I know about it, you look at how we're getting this much metal from point A to point B, it, it absolutely still boggles my mind. I, I really love being a part of this profession. I would say if somebody is trying to make a decision on where do you go, what should your next steps be? Honestly, I think the best thing you can do is follow your heart. If you look at a, an airline like Spirit, which obviously Ben's got so much experience with, if you're looking at an airline like that and you go, I just think it would be fun to fly there, then I would say if you're with a regional, leave the regional and go to Spirit. If you're looking at Spirit and go, wow, I don't want to fly for Spirit. I really want to hold out for United or Delta or American or Southwest. Then hold out where you are. Enjoy, build some seniority. Enjoy your lifestyle there. The important thing is to find what you enjoy doing and follow your heart on that. And I really believe if you follow your heart, everything else will work out for you. That's good advice, Bob. Let's get back to Sky Heist for a minute. You created some very memorable characters in the book. Do you see writing more airline-centric stories using either a continuation of these characters or maybe some new ones you create? Well, I'll tell you, Ben, when I'm writing a story, I'm not a big fan of sequels. I usually like to just tell the story and that's the story. I don't see the characters of Sky Heist showing their heads in any future novels. But I, I do write all the time. Right now, I'm actually, the book I'm working on is a story about the very first days of commercial aviation, set back in the, uh, in the 1910s and the 1920s and how airmail came to... Uh, to uh, develop into commercial aviation. So I think that there are a lot of different stories out there, and I think that they have a different set of characters. I know there are a lot of people that do really, really well with using the same characters over and over again. Uh, you know, the, the Jack Ryans, the, the Jack Reachers, so many of these. I'm just not that type of a writer. I usually come up with a story, and I like to tell the story as it's, as it's one contained unit. And then when it's done, I like to move on to the next story. So, Bob, as we wrap up, final piece of advice uh, for wannabe pilots. There's a 
a fair number of them that are listening, hopefully every week, uh, learning about the business. And for others who want to get into aviation, uh, what's your uh, parting words of advice? This is the greatest profession out there. I absolutely love this profession. And anybody who wants to get into it, I think you're making the right decision if you want to get into aviation. That said, it is also one of the hardest professions. There will come times where you get discouraged and you've got to fight through that. You are going to run into people who tell you you cannot make it. You will never make it. And you've got to not listen to them. And the hardest part is going to be when that person telling you you will not make it is going to be yourself. I cannot imagine that there is a pilot out there at some point who hasn't looked at what the road that they're traveling and said, I just can't do this anymore. And when you do face that, when you do face that negativity, especially in yourself, you just have to turn away from it, look at the positive and persevere. And when you do get to the other side, this has just been such a rewarding career. It has been so much fun. And the best thing about this profession are the people you will meet, the people you will work with. And uh, it really is just absolutely, uh, it is it is more rewarding than I could ever describe. And uh, as I said, it is absolutely just an honor to be a part of this profession. Well, Captain Bob, this has been terrific. I don't think Chris and I could agree with you more on the advice you just gave. The other thing that I really love about this industry is just how it keeps changing and evolving. I've been in the industry for over 35 years, and I still feel like I learn something new every day. And I don't know that there's many industries that you can say that about. Absolutely agree with you. Well, thanks so much for sharing some of your experiences with us. Anyone who flies Delta, if you're like me, you're going to walk on the plane and say, "Is if it's a 220, say, is Captain Bob Branton flying this plane? I want to say hello to him. And so we really appreciate you coming on and talking to, to us. I would highly recommend Sky Heist as a book. It'll be on our website, airlinesconfidential.com, as a recommended read as well. So thank you so much for coming on the show, Bob. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Chris. It was a, it was a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Bob. Good talking to you. Thank you. We'll be back with more Airlines Confidential in a minute. Promotional consideration by thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation. Thearchive.net is now boarding. This portion of Airlines Confidential is sponsored in part by Aerodata, the leading edge in flight performance data. Visit aerodata.co. Aerodata is a Garmin company. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential. It's time for listener questions. Remember, you can send us your questions via email at questions at airlinesconfidential.com or visit airlinesconfidential.com and follow the prompts. Chris, we've got a question from a faithful listener from Australia who identifies himself as Old Crokey. It's about the restart of Boeing 787 deliveries and the additional FAA scrutiny and inspections. Thank you both for your podcast. It's always a weekly must-listen show. Will Boeing incur an extra fee from the FAA for the increased number of inspections the company's aircraft require? It's a great question. What do you think, Chris? It is. But first, I've got to ask, 
if our listeners known as old croaky, does that mean there's a young croaky and a <laughs> <laughs> and a sexy croaky? And you know, um, but thanks, thanks for the question. It's it is a good one. I don't have what I would call a definitive answer. So if someone wants to jump in and follow up and correct me, please do so. But there are fees for FAA inspection services provided outside the U.S., such as at an offshore maintenance facility in Panama that might be doing work for U.S. carriers. So there's a there's a fee and there's a system to set those fees. But for inspections by FAA on U.S. soil, there is no fee structure. I personally would be very surprised if there was some kind of payment for services relationship here. But let's not forget Boeing has paid multi-million dollar fines related to both the Dreamliner and the 737 MAX deficiencies. I tallied up over $17 million over the last five or six years, but it could be more. So in an indirect way, Boeing is paying for the FAA's extra costs but not in some pay-for-performance kind of way, which I think Boeing and the FAA would want to avoid getting themselves into after a very public discussion over the cozy relationship that previously existed. So I'm going to say the answer is no, and I dare someone to correct me. Ben, what do you think? I'm not going to correct you because I think you got that one right, Chris. But thanks, old Crokey, for a great thought. Ben, we've got a question for you. It's a food question, and I take you as a foodie, so you take this question. It's from Linda in Phoenix. Chris and Ben love the podcast, and I listen regularly. What is with America not bringing back food for purchase and coach? I'm a million miler, executive platinum, and yes, many times I do receive complimentary upgrades to first class, so I'm able to have food there. But as far as I know or I've read, most of the airlines have continued food for purchase in coach or brought it back. I fly frequently from Phoenix to Philly, and that can be four and a half hours at times. That's a long time with no food. I agree that's a long time with no food. This is actually a complicated question, Linda. You know, when the pandemic hit and airlines had to be in triage mode, basically, with not a lot of demand and such, they looked at ways they could lower costs. And the pandemic was an excuse that many airlines used as to why they stopped doing things that they were doing before the pandemic, whether it was adding a charge for something they didn't use to charge for or a certain service that they used to give that they weren't giving. One of those was for a while, no one was serving food on a for purchase or free basis, but then it slowly started to come back. And you're right, most other airlines are now either offering food and coach or selling food and coach. And they believe that's part of their product. Many of them measure the incremental profitability of that and know that they could make money doing that that way. Why American hasn't done this yet is really surprising to me, actually. I don't know whether American lost money selling food and coach. And so they said, well, we took it away for a while. We're just never going to bring it back. Or whether there's a struggle in the airline of maybe only flights over a certain amount of hours should get food. Maybe it's an issue with their flight attendant union about what they'll do and not do. So I think that the answer to your question is, 
is not really certain what's going to happen here. I don't think American would want to be in the business of flying you four and a half hours and not having something to at least sell you to eat in the coach cabin. And so I'd be surprised if they don't find a solution to this problem, at least for longer flights. Maybe they'll continue in perpetuity not offering a coach food product, even on a for sale basis on shorter flights. But when you get to Transcon or close to Transcon flights, I'd expect this to come back pretty soon. Don't you, Chris? Yeah, I would think so. It's an open invitation to someone from American who's listening or from Gate Gourmet or one of the, the catering services. What's going on here? I find it somewhat ironic after decades of jokes about airline food. Now people are clamoring to get it back. So um, <laughs> so that's a good thing. It's, it's, it's an indication that the quality has been improved. But it's a good question that we don't have an answer to, but by putting it out there, hopefully someone will help us get it answered. And then one more quick one. I'm going to ask myself this question. It's from Tom and Dallas, and you'll see why we're going to handle it this way. Hey, Ben and Chris, enjoyed last week's show, and the Air France KLM news was fascinating. However, noticeably absent was a discussion about JetBlue, which on August 2nd reported the first loss of the major carriers. I thought... This would be big news as all three legacies, as well as Southwest, Alaska, and Frontier, all reported second quarter profits. This would seem to indicate a unique problem at JetBlue as everyone faced the same fuel, labor, inflation, and operational headwinds when it comes to costs. But JetBlue and now Spirit, which also reported a loss, seem to be the outliers in their results. Curious to know your thoughts on why JetBlue did so poorly compared to the competition and what this means for them going forward. P.S. I know both of you can't always discuss JetBlue due to Ben being on the board, but I thought Chris might say something about it. So I am. So first off, Tom, thanks for the question. Uh, it wasn't a deliberate you know, ignoring the JetBlue results as much as trying to kind of move the conversation around. We get a lot of requests to make sure we cover airlines and the industry outside of the U.S., and so we pivoted to the results in Europe. But you raised some good points. As I went back and read the transcript from the JetBlue results call, you know, obviously, like you called out, Tom, they have a cost structure issue up like 35% year over, not year over year, but year over 2019. They're not the only ones with these results as far as increased costs. They and Spirit are kind of hemmed in a bit with regard to their presence in Florida, which has had some operational issues with weather this past quarter that just finished. And then, you know, business travel still isn't back as it might be in New York and Boston, which are, again, JetBlue strongholds and, and um, important markets for them. So they've got that going, that those headwinds are a little bit heavier on JetBlue and Spirit than some of the other carriers. But doesn't excuse the fact they got some cost issues. And I think all this behooves JetBlue. First, they've got to get the transaction approved by the DOJ to acquire Spirit. But you know, my experience has been oftentimes when two companies merge, the acquiring company kind of rides in on their horses and says, you know, we're the new sheriff in town. Here's how we're going to do things. JetBlue is going to have lots of opportunity to learn from 
a, a leader in ultra low cost airline operations how to adopt activities and processes that will lower their costs while at the same time maintaining or their more premium service. But they need to be active listeners and learn from Spirit through this process once it starts because they do have an underlying cost problem. And they kind of talked around it a bit on the earnings call. Ben, I'm not going to ask you to respond, but that's just my observation as I read the transcript and kind of thought about how you could better tell the story. But in any event, uh, Tom, good question. Hopefully we addressed it to some satisfactory way and appreciate your calling us on it. So Ben, we've got a finer wine and it's from Nick in Boston. Recently on a Delta flight, I started a show on my seatback screen and proceeded to fall asleep. I was in the window and was woken by the aisle passenger who was clearly annoyed with me. Apparently there was a scene in my show with a topless woman and that passenger's preteen son in the middle seat next to me was getting an eyeful. I didn't argue with her, but I also thought she must have been mistaken. There's no way that type of content isn't edited for the IFE. I flew again a few days later, played the same show, and to my surprise, she was not mistaken. The show wasn't edited at all. I called Delta, and while the rep was apologetic and credited my account with some medallion pacifier miles, I got the feeling that this wasn't actually going to be escalated. Since then, I've run into content like this a few other times. I've opted to stop those shows so I don't risk being chastised again. It definitely makes me think twice before watching content from HBO, Showtime, or other such channels. Is it reasonable to expect carriers to edit IFE content when your screen is clearly visible to others? If you can't put it on network TV or wouldn't show it on the whole cabin screen, why would you make it available? Or am I just being a prude? Is this a fine or a wine? Looking forward to your thoughts. This is a great one, Nick, and I'm not sure if this is a finer wine. On the one hand, there's a lot of content on TV today. Some of it you certainly wouldn't want younger children or maybe even teenagers to watch. Not hearing it and only seeing it also adds a difference as to what you might allow and might not allow. If you're watching it on your own screen, I might be much more open to the kind of things I'd show because if you're watching it on your phone or your tablet, you could clearly sort of turn it towards you and you're watching it and you're not sort of broadcasting this to the people sitting around you. But if it's on a screen in the seat back in front of you, whether you can hear it or not, I do think that the airline has some obligation to be sure that the images shown on that screen are something they would show to the entire cabin. So in that sense, I'm going to lean toward fine on this. I think your idea there is good. I also like, by the way, your use of the term pacifier miles. I'm not sure if Delta actually uses that term, but maybe <laughs> they should. I really like that. So I'm going to lean toward fine because I think if it's a airline supplied screen that can't be sort of repositioned in any way, whether you can hear it or not, I think the airline should be sure that the images shown on that are something they'd be comfortable the whole plane could see. So maybe I'm a prude too, Chris. 
<laughs> no, I, I think, you know, I could argue either way. I mean, I have to admit, I don't watch a lot of TV on planes. But, you know, when I went to Europe this summer, I flew both ways and didn't watch one movie. But my recollection is often there's a disclaimer at the beginning saying this has not been edited for, you know, or this is the original format or some guidance with regard to objectionable scenes haven't been cut out. So be forewarned. That doesn't help you when there's a pre-puberty young kid sitting next to you kind of looking over your shoulder. So again, I, I think one could argue both sides of this. I have been though on planes where somebody on their iPad didn't have objectionable material. They had flat out porn. That was very uncomfortable uh, as they sat and watched it um, on their iPad. So, you know, it's a it's an interesting question and an interesting dilemma. So I think you land about the right place. I don't know what our listeners are going to think, but we'll see. You know, I would be feel different about this, Chris, if it were streamed through the airplane Wi-Fi and you were watching on your own device. I think I'd feel differently about that. And again, something that maybe I wouldn't show on the whole airplane because of language I might be more open to that on a seat back screen, assuming that the person sitting next to me can see my screen but can't hear it. Yeah, I agree with everything you said. So as we wrap up, time for shout outs. I want to give my shout out to Dominican Republic-based ultra low-cost carrier Aerojet, who put their first flights up for sale on August 9th, ahead of a launch of September 15th. We've talked about them previously, about their announcement to get started. Now it's becoming a reality. We'll be watching their launch and wishing them all. Absolutely. And it'll be nice to follow them as they go. Chris, before I do my shout out, I want to do a quick correction and apology. Last week, my shout out was to Akasa Air, a new airline starting in India. But I think I called them Akaska, not Akasa. And so I apologize about that. Won't be the last airline name I get wrong. We all know how all of us struggled with the name Avalo for a long time, right? <laughs> and Avalo is my shout out for this week. Um, the new airline carried their one millionth passenger. And for that, Andrew Levy, their founder, CEO, and friend of the show too, gave everyone on the plane a free ticket for another Avalo flight. I thought that was a great thing to do, really sort of keeps the spirit up. It's hard for new airlines to get traction, to get motivation. So celebrating these kinds of targets is a really great thing. And when you can give your customers benefit of that, that's even better. So good job, Avalo. Okay, I hate to be a smartass, but I thought it was a velo like hello. It is a velo, rhymes with yellow. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we got that straight as well. So it's not Avalo, it's a velo. That's right. And so proving <laughs> that right after I say I make another mistake, I make another mistake. <laughs> Well, Ben Baldanzi, you have a good week. Everybody else, have a good week. Thanks for listening. Have a great week, everyone. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.